Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. The text for the sermon this morning comes from our first reading from Acts 5, but also uh, the gospel reading with Thomas and the disciples being gathered together and uh, Jesus appearing to them in the flesh, flesh and blood there with them. But in particular, this instance in Acts 5, um, when Peter says in verse 31, or verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him as his, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In the gift of repentance, we have the way of peace. And God's grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the gift of repentance, we have the way of peace. The disciples in our first reading in Acts, it's a pretty tense situation. But they're not at all surprised that the enemies of the gospel in Jesus are going after them. That's the way life is when people's false securities are threatened. When you take away the false gods and the things that people trust, they become angry. Our gospel reading begins the evening of the resurrection of Jesus. The first time Jesus comes to his apostles, it's Easter Sunday. The disciples are still unsure what the death and resurrection of Jesus means for them. Their secure way of life has been taken away. Their Lord, the one who they thought was to be the one, has been crucified and he is dead. They do not have the way of peace. They're in the room and the doors are locked and they don't know what to do. But can we really fault them for being so afraid? That was the point of the crucifixion. The crucifixion as a as a thing of punishment and a deterrent for crime, it did its job. It scared everyone who was associated with Jesus and anyone who thought, this is maybe what the disciples thought, that worldly success was Jesus' goal. And perhaps even the disciples are afraid because they thought this was also going to be the goal of the church that they would just be welcomed in by the people of power. They would be respected. Jesus would receive the honor due him, and life, well, would be great. But for those who think that in this life the church is going to have the way of peace, well, your securities will be stripped away. The crucifixion was a success if you look at it with worldly eyes. But looking at, the, looking at the church and Jesus with worldly eyes, the crucifixion is one of the biggest failures. The death and burial of Jesus was the end of what could have been a great political movement. But the Romans know how to deal with political uprising. If you want to put an end to a movement, you kill the leader. This then is what the leader, the Pharisee, the leader, Gamaliel, this is what he's trying to tell the people who are 
talking about what to do with these apostles. In Acts, remember this reading, Jesus has already ascended into heaven. And Gamaliel says, we know how we've dealt with these political uprisings in the past. You kill the leader and then deal with the followers as appropriate. But don't make a bit too big of a deal of it because they'll probably just fade away. Anyone who might think they want to pick up the reins and follow, well, if it's of man, it'll fade away. The disciples know this. They know that the Jews would do just exactly what they're doing. The disciples knew that they would seek out the followers of Jesus and make life difficult, make life chaotic, make life hard, so that the disciples would choose the easy way and just fade off into life. Just go back to the countryside and live life as good Jews. Thomas, though, certainly was wrestling with this problem. Thomas, on that first evening, was having difficulty reconciling in his mind if following Jesus and being with his church is really worth the effort. This isn't the first time Thomas has been mentioned. Earlier in John 14, Jesus was speaking about going to the cross and then also being raised. And and Thomas said, Jesus, how do we know the way to go? Thomas wanted an easy way. He wanted a life of ease that wasn't going to cause him to chafe. Thomas wasn't with the disciples on Easter. Perhaps Thomas thought, with all the threats and life being more difficult, why should I risk it? Thomas did not want Jesus to have truly died. Because Thomas was in danger of believing that Jesus was just a man. And if Jesus is just a man, then he's dead, and following Jesus is not worth facing suffering in this life. Thomas was tempted with the easy way. And I think it's safe to say we've all been tempted in this way to go the easy way in life. We've all fallen victim to this temptation of going the easy way when it comes to sin. Too often, we go the way of least resistance, like Thomas. The way of least resistance and not contemplating what it is that Jesus truly said. Remember, Thomas had the word of God. He had the same thing. All the disciples, they had the word and promises of God, yet they doubted that Jesus was who he says, who he said he was. The Bible actually warns us against this sin of going the easiest way the way of least resistance, the way of capitulating when it comes to temptation of either knowing and reading God's word or just living an easy life. Taking time out of our schedules, time out of our day to study God's word or even being willing to face political scorn to be faithful to God's word. The way of least resistance are known as the way of laziness. The the Bible actually speaks against laziness. 
The book of Proverbs is a book full of wisdom. And even in the book of Proverbs, laziness is spoken as a way of evil. The proverb, the, the writer of the Proverbs says, A sluggard's appetite is never filled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in forced labor. You can look at these from a worldly perspective as good advice, but also consider these and their spiritual aspect. If we're only looking for the way of least resistance in life, or if like the disciples, the way of least resistance is to be afraid when the political fires get hot, then according to Proverbs, we will never have peace. If you compromise, you will never find peace. In fact, look at the mobs. The mobs, the political mobs that demand us bow to the, to the doctrines of wokeism. Even when you capitulate to them, they never stop. They keep putting pressure on you because they're like sharks who smell blood. You can even see that with the disciples. But the disciples refused to give in. Or maybe when it comes to sin, maybe we don't even consider God's word when it comes to which way we should go when we face temptation. Many times it's the spontaneous sins that get us when we're not so lazy, but we're so ready to jump, so ready to accuse flying off the hook, losing our patience, not slowing down and actually considering what God's Word teaches, having little or no time to read God's Word on topics such as marriage, working diligently with our hands and time, our role as men and women in our relationship to each other and how we should act, being active in our church, does God's word say anything about budgeting? Pick your topic. Where is the first place we should go when trying to decide how we should live our lives? God's word is a fount of wisdom. I too find myself too often when I'm faced with a challenge or question, the first thing I do is go to YouTube or Google. But God's word is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. But wicked people don't love God's word. They could care less what the Bible says. That's the easy way, the way of least resistance. Sometimes we don't like to hear God's word because the word of God is, as we are taught, a double-edged sword. It is meant to cut to pierce between bone and marrow and muscle. Sometimes God's word is hard, but that's the gift of repentance that Peter talks about. In Acts, the enemies of the apostles, remember the, in Acts here, the, the early church, the apostles were doing miracles. They were healing people and casting out demons. But what did the enemies of the apostles want them to stop doing? They said, you must stop preaching in Jesus' name. 
The enemies of the gospel couldn't handle the word of God because they love lies. Their pride kept them from receiving the gift of repentance. There was no mention in the miracles, when they bring the charges against the disciples, there was no mention of the miracles as a reason for their arrest. It was solely for preaching in the name of Jesus, just mentioning his name and saying that they are responsible for the death of Jesus. But you know, that's what we all need. All of us. It isn't just the Sadducees and the chief priests who need to be accused of this. All of us do. All of us need to confess that we are responsible for the death of Jesus. It's not an easy way. It's not the way of least resistance, but it's the way of truth. The way of repentance and faith, which Peter says is a gift of God. This was Peter's response to why they continued to preach. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus dies and was raised and ascended to God's right hand so that he may give us a new way of life, the way of repentance and forgiveness of sins. This is what Peter says is a gift of God, for God's word to actually sting. But the Sadducees and those standing around, they didn't want this gift of repentance. Isn't that a strange way to think of repentance as a gift? But that's what Peter says it is in verse 31. Repentance, seeing your sin and saying, yes, that sin is mine. I am guilty of the blood of Jesus. No matter the sin, believing that is a gift of God. Now, the disciples that Easter evening in our gospel reading, they were certainly gifted with repentance when they saw Jesus on Easter. They were quite disturbed, but then they heard the word of God. John says Jesus came and stood among them, and he didn't just stand there, but he preached to them. He said, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were then glad. Paul in Romans 5 says it like this, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. The disciples know that they are right with God because Jesus' death was for them. They knew the wounds in Jesus' hands were because of their sin. And they were truly sorry. And through that repentance then, what do they find? Peace. Because that's what the gift of repentance is. As scary and as dangerous and as hurtful as it might look to our pride, this is really the only place you will find peace. Peace from outside yourself. Because we understand repentance as having two parts. First, that we have sorrow over our sin. And not that we wallow in it. Not that we enjoy it but that we are sorry for our sin. And second, by faith, we know that our sins are forgiven. 
Repentance is not just being sorry, but it also includes faith. Believing that for Jesus' sake, all of our sins are gone and even death is defeated. That's the joy that the apostles have that Easter Sunday and the reason they have peace. The reason then why now in Acts, they are ready to die for the gospel. On Easter, they were afraid. Peter himself was even scared by a little girl, a servant's girl. But now they're ready to even give their life. They have joy because forgiveness comes from outside of them. And this is why Jesus establishes the church and the keys, the office of the keys and holy absolution. Jesus gives his authority to forgive sins to his church, as you heard him say today. Whose ever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And this is why we get together every Sunday and even more to hear of the forgiveness of God, to be given repentance and peace. Because even in Luke 24, Jesus says to the disciples, go preach repentance and forgiveness in my name, beginning in Jerusalem and to all the world, to you. Because Jesus did not take the easy way. God could have just destroyed the world after the first sin. He could have just destroyed you after your first sin. Or your hundredth sin. Or your thousandth sin. Or your ten thousandth sin. But you see, Jesus doesn't go the way of least resistance. But he gives his life for the world because he loves you. He does what is necessary to take your sins away so that you will not be destroyed. God considered the cost of remaining faithful for you. Jesus considered the cost of remaining faithful to give you peace. And he does it. Jesus lives a perfect life. He endures all temptation. He never flies off the hook. He never considers temptation and then sins. He's willing to endure the scorn of the world. He remains faithful unto death so that you may have peace with God. God loves you. He desires you to hear and to confess that you have sinned because he wants you to have peace. Not peace as the world gives, which is here today and gone tomorrow. But he wants you to confess your sins so that you may hear the forgiveness and the blood of Jesus cover those exact sins. His blood is like a flood, a river of mercy that flows from his side, covers the entire world, and you included. Because you see, none of the disciples wanted Jesus to die. The Sadducees, the chief priests, they didn't want any part of Jesus' death. They said, Jesus, death, not our problem. They, like the disciples, wanted to avoid the truth. But if Jesus didn't die because of your sins, then your sins are still yours. 
If Jesus didn't die, then we're still in our trespasses and sins. But if your sins were there on the cross with Jesus, if your sins were in the nails, in the whips, in the agony, the being forsaken by God, if your sins did that, then your sins did not keep Jesus dead. Not only that, your sins do not keep Jesus away from you. Jesus came and met Thomas and the disciples a week later. Look at the kindness and mercy of Jesus that he desires Thomas to hear his word so that Thomas too may have peace. Thomas needed peace and Jesus brought him peace through absolution. Blessed are you who have not seen yet believe. Thomas needed peace and Jesus brought him peace by something that seemed impossible. Jesus' true physical body present for Thomas' forgiveness. Here, feel my body. See my blood, he says. Look at my scars. Feel them, touch them. So Jesus says to us the same thing in what seems to be impossible. Not just the fact that he's bodily present in the sacrament, but that he would come to sinners such as us and say, touch and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Here, feel my body, taste my blood, and receive peace through this sacrament. This is how Jesus comes to us now. He is seemingly impossible feat of being in the bread and wine for us, just as amazing as it was that he was bodily present for the disciples that day. So then in thankfulness, let's cast off laziness. Let's turn away from idle hands and rejoice in God's word by diligent study, by attending Bible study and Sunday school, reading our scriptures and having ears that are open to rebuke and lips that are ready to speak forgiveness to one another. Because what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, I give you the easy way. He says, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in Jesus, you are truly forgiven. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia.